This is episode 71 of Cinescope, and we are the voice of peace, and bit by bit, we will change this world. Welcome to Cinescope, where our goal is not to criticize or to assign ratings, but rather to celebrate the movies we love, exploring story, characters, music, and relevance to the world around us. I'm your host, Chad Hopkins, and joining me today is Gabriel Green to talk about one of our favorite films, How to Train Your Dragon 2. Gabe, how are you doing? I am doing pretty good. It's uh, great to talk to you again. Yeah, this is your first time on the show solo, Sans James. So it's nice to have you on. And this was a film that you requested a couple months ago, and uh, the timing just seemed right. Mm-hmm. And it's been a long time since we talked last, right? Yeah, a whole long time. <laughs> just a, a week or two, <laughs> to be honest. Um, how about you reintroduce yourself and sort of reintroduce your show, too, since it's changing up here pretty soon. And then we can talk about what we talked about. Yeah, so um, uh, my name's Gabriel Green, and I have a show that I run with uh, our pal James Hamrick. It's called Franchise Fatigue. Um, formerly, it was called Underrated, and we talked about underrated films, but we actually rebooted it in the over the past month. Um, so I, th- it's actually not up right now. It should be up within a week. Uh, we will be starting on the Indiana Jones series and talking our way through all those films, and we had you on to talk about... Uh, the kingdom of the crystal skull. So uh, that's yes. who I am and what I do. <laughs> yeah. I'm looking forward to those going live so I can listen to your thoughts on the first three Indiana Jones films and then prepare myself for the backlash on the fourth Indiana Jones film. Although I think <laughs> I was fair and critical as well, which is something I don't do on Cinescope, but it was nice to sort of to swing the criticism hammer a little bit on yours. So <laughs> I'm looking forward to uh, releasing that. Yeah, it's not like there was much to criticize in that film, you know? Yeah, nah, not at all. My favorite scene is the one with the fridge. Oh, yeah, that, that's, that's really good. <laughs> well, before we upset too many people, let's go ahead and jump into our discussion if you're ready. It is kind of late at night, and uh, we're getting a late start, but that's okay, because this is a great film. Oh, yeah. So we are talking about How to Train Your Dragon 2. I previously talked about the first How to Train Your Dragon with my best friend Andrew a little more than a year ago. Uh, This movie was released on June 13th of 2004 and was directed by co-director of the first film, Dean DeBloy, who also co-directed Lilo and Stitch with Chris Sanders, as well as How to Train Your Dragon, Haima, which is a documentary on the band Seeger Rose, and he is set to direct the hopefully uh, end of the trilogy. I, I don't know if we'll see more How to Train Your Dragon films in the future, but it's planned trilogy right now, so he'll be directing How to Train Your Dragon 3. He also wrote this film, and the music is by returning composer John Powell, the king of animated movie scores. He also composed Ants, Chicken Run, Shrek with Harry Gregson Williams, The Road to El Dorado, Kung Fu Panda, and Kung Fu Panda 2 with Hans Zimmer, and The Born Identity, Supremacy, Ultimatum, and Jason Bourne recently with David Buckley. This film, Pan the recent Ferdinand, and is actually set to compose the score for the next Star Wars anthology film, Solo. Which is cool with me. Yeah, same here. Um, Quick aside, I read recently that John Williams is actually going to be composing like a main theme for Solo, and then Powell will be composing the rest of the score. So I'm excited to see 
how they play around with that. That sounds like an awesome collaboration. Yeah, he seems to be a good collaborator. Um, this movie does star Jay Baruchel, Kate Blanchett, Gerard Butler, Craig Ferguson, America Ferreira, Christopher Mintzplass, Jonah Hill, T.J. Miller, Jamon Hunsau, and Kit Harrington. So, as always, let's start off. What was your first experience? And sort of give your background on your experience with the first film as well. Um, I, I don't, I think we just watched the first one as a family. Um, I don't remember my first viewing, but I quickly became a huge fan of it. And so when the uh, second one came out, I think I saw it opening night. Um, and probably two or three more times in the theater. I know I saw it at least twice. Uh, but just as far as how it relates to the first film, I I think I might like it just slightly less, but in a weird way, it's I I it's I think it's a far more mature and uh and a thoughtful movie and probably I would put it up there with you know Two Towers and Empire Strikes Back as one of the best sequels out there. It just takes everything that I loved about the first film and expands on it and dives way deeper in there and asks really you know really hard questions of these characters and does things that I'm pretty shocked they did in an animated film. So I I really love this movie. Same here. Uh, I mean, I've gone over this story before, but, you know, I didn't see the first film in theaters. It sort of caught me by surprise because DreamWorks traditionally hasn't been a, uh, a studio that I paid a whole lot of attention to their animated fare for. Uh, I liked the first two Shrek films, I suppose. I liked their earlier efforts like Ants. Uh, but even then, I've only seen Ants maybe twice in my life. Uh, so I didn't see How to Train Your Dragon in the theater, but I saw it in snippets, like in pieces on the the TV in my stateroom on a cruise ship back in like 2010, 2011. And that was the first time I'd seen any of it. And I liked it a lot and I got it on Blu-ray eventually. And over time I fell in love with it. And to be quite honest, the first how to train your dragon film might be my favorite animated movie ever. Um, there are certainly some Pixar contenders, which I'm not going to go into here, but how to train your dragon is so high on my list of not only animated films, but just films in general. In fact, I just got a black kitten about a month ago and I almost named him toothless. I would have named him <laughs> toothless if the name he had already wasn't so great for his personality, but that's beside the point. Um, so news of the sequel had me skeptical, hopeful, but uh, you know, how to train your dragon wasn't DreamWorks first successful effort. They had proven a few times that they could make good films and even great sequels with stuff like Shrek 2, as I mentioned. And when I finally got around to seeing this one in theaters, I saw it as a double feature with the first film. It might have even been in IMAX, which was amazing. So I got to see the first one on the big screen for the first time, followed immediately by the sequel. That's awesome. And oh yeah, it was so good. Test drive on the big screen. Mm, oh good stuff. <laughs> but I mean... It's unbelievable that they matched, I would say they at least, or maybe just slightly undermatched the, the quality of the first film. This film is so good. It's so pretty to look at. It builds on things that were started in the first film. And in most ways, this one actually makes me more like emotional. This one affects me more on an emotional level than the first one does. The first one's like just a, a joyful movie experience. And it, it's interesting to watch the Hiccup and Toothless relationship unfold and strengthen. But here, 
we can use this to transition into story elements. They time jump, and we see that they have been best friends for a long time now. We see the positive effect of Hiccup's actions from the first film on Burke and his positive relationship with his father now, though they do have their new uh, obstacles to overcome within that relationship. And it's just amazing to me that they were able to take such a fantastic, top-notch film and in some ways improve it and in all ways really just like drive a stake into my heart in the best ways. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there are some pretty uh, hefty emotions in this movie. Uh, And like I said, I just love the time jump. I like that they didn't feel the need to sort of bridge the gap. It was just this movie took place in this time period and this movie took place five years later and Hiccup is a young adult now. He's matured. He has established himself, but he's still figuring himself out. And we, we get to see the positive effects on the dragons at, uh, in Burke with stuff like the, the dragon races, the, the saddle construction, fire prevention, all these things that show that the dragons are such a big part of their society now. They were before, but it was because they were hunting them they were killing them and now it's recreational and they're they're friends with them and it it's just interesting how it's come full circle yes hiccup made uh, a positive effect on the city but he's still sort of struggling with identity in a different way than he was in the first film and i like that continued theme of who we are yeah, I, I also just about the animation. I love the updated character designs. There's just very little, subtle change. They still look like the same people, but these wonderful little changes, you know, making them into adults. And like you said, the um, the character arcs in this film are very much continuations of where they were going at the end of the first film. It's it's a completely believable sequel as far as all the themes and uh, arcs is dealing with. And man, the, the flight sequences, the set design, everything is beautiful. The cinematography, not even just like at the beginning when he's flying through the open air over the ocean and the clouds and all that kind of stuff, but even the combat sequences where they're flying around the bewilder beasts and they're oh, diving yeah. in and out between giant creature legs. It's it's no wonder when you look at the credits and you see Roger Deakins' name oh, pop mm-hmm. up because yeah. he was a visual consultant on the the visual design of the film, on the cinematography cinematography of the film. This past year, we we saw him doing stuff with like Blade Runner 2049, and it just shows that mm-hmm. everything this man touches is gold visually, and it is such a pretty movie to look at. Yeah, and watching the special features, he was actually with them on location scouts and stuff, so he was pretty involved. And I mean, it it shows. I mean, if the first film is color wise, is kind of flat greens and grays, but this it's like totally expands the visual palette. And just some of the compositions in here are like some of my favorite all time of like any film, not just you know animated films. Yeah, and the, the the introduction of all these new dragons in this dragon haven really helps with that. And the the introduction of the bewildered beasts that breathe ice instead of fire. And so we have these jagged ice compositions that sort of signify both destruction and beauty. It, it's a really cool use of color in that ice effect and in just the design of the dragons and you get into the haven where he meets his mother and you see all the dragons flying around and it's just color after color after color and it it, the contrast that i think stands out the most to me is that in the first film the dragons were feared and so they were sort of darker muted colors 
And now in this one, they're not feared by the people of Burke. They are celebrated. They're used recreationally. They're, they're friends and pets. And so they do take on a much brighter appearance. Even stuff like the Gronkle that fish legs flies around has a little bit more of a, a spriteful personality than it did huh. in the first film. So I, I really like that. So instead, uh, drag goes gray. Right. Um, I love how this movie, uh, aside from building characters, aside from building themes, it takes certain scenes in the first film and sort of echoes them here. Like uh, the This Is Burke intro and outro. That's how we uh, start and end the first film. That's how we start and end this film. And it, it's a great way to sum up where we start and then at the end, the journey that we've gone on and sort of the outlook of the character. And then there's stuff like the test drive sequence from the first film, which was huge in establishing this connection between Hiccup and Toothless. And we get that at the very beginning of this one, um, where we're seeing their bond is stronger than ever five years later. And they're experimenting with something else. They figured out flying, but now Hiccup's trying his own gliding. Mm-hmm. And it, it's just really cool how they echo these things from the first film and bring them into the second film in a, a, a new light. Yeah. I, I, I love those uh, intros and outros just cause well, uh, Hiccup is so snarky and I love, I love <laughs> his quotes, but it, as you said, it's just such a beautiful and simple way of showing where the, where the culture is now. And I, and uh, I know you have a section talking about music later, but the, uh, the, the, the music, this is Burke from the first one. Uh, it's now it's now it's basically almost beat for beat the same except for these little bits uh where it'll it'll go it'll break off in these really creative fun ways mm-hmm. um so it's called a dragon racing but it's just it just brings you right back and shows you what's the same what's different and just gives you a great you know update on where this world is now in a very fun way Right. And the music, we will talk about the music, but the music is another way in which they bring elements of the first film forward and build upon them and add to them. And uh, it's just amazing. I I can't get over how great the sequel was because we didn't expect the first film to be any good. And then it was. And then we sort of didn't expect the second film to be any good. And it was almost as good or just as good as the first one. It just blows my mind that they were able to so consistently make these characters that we care about and tell these stories that we're invested in. And it, it, it's just amazing. So let's go ahead and talk about those characters, um, starting off with Hiccup and by extension, Toothless. What, what do you have to say about him to start with? I have a lot to say about <laughs> Hiccup. Um, it's, I don't know if I can exactly talk about him without going into the whole story. Cause his, the way his, his arc, his father's arc, and uh, Drogo kind of their their stories all intersect and interweave. Um, but just I guess kind of on a basic level, uh, I just I love how how coming off the first film, even though he's in a really good place with his father with the tribe, he's still going through that phase that you know young adults go through. Where, where you kind of you don't want to settle down into any one job or any one thing you kind of you you're you're afraid to lose that kind of that freedom you had as a, as a child or a teenager and i like that even though he still has a great relationship with his father in a way but he's still there's still that disconnect between them which is which is no doubt <laughs> carrying over from their very strained uh relationship earlier to where 
he's just very resistant uh, to becoming chief. Probably a lot of that is due to simply he doesn't want to become his father. That's kind of something that's been a negative to him for all his life. And so to see him across this film find his place in the world, uh, you know, and learn to accept the good things about who his father was. I, I love that we're looking at their how how hard their relationship was at the opening of the first one till by the end where he's you know he's using his father's quotes you know a chief protects his own and leading the people by by you know taking everything that was good about stoic along with the things that make hiccup special as a person and you're just leading the people forward in a in a way that isn't that, that isn't disrespectful of the past but you know uses the good things about it uh in just a, a really i think intelligent balanced way because if i had one criticism of the first one it was just kind of it's kind of that cliched you know teenagers are right adults are wrong the whole world needs to change and i think this comes with a much more balanced look at it to where hiccup isn't always right in fact his main quest for the first half of the film ends disastrously as with his father being killed but but he what i love is he takes that knowledge and then finds a way to fuse the new and the old into something that's even stronger than either either could be. It, it, it's we've said this. It's the continuation of the same struggle he had in the first film. It's just changed a little bit. You know, at the beginning, he he's got his village and his father on the side of the dragons with him, but now he wants to explore and to chart new territories since he can. But his father wants him to be chief, and he just doesn't fit in that way. In in the first one, he doesn't want to kill dragons, and now he doesn't want to lead his people. He wants the freedom to just be whatever he is, and unfortunately, he's still trying to figure that out. Um, so I, I like seeing that journey. I do like that he fails in this film in a bigger way that he does than he does in the first one. Um, he's he's headstrong. He's overconfident in his abilities, sort of just like Drago is. Really, uh, he's he's well intentioned, but just a bit naive because he is ignoring his parents he not only his father who tells him it's a bad idea to confront a man who kills without reason because it can't be reasoned with and then when he mentions it to his mother later after they've had their reunion and been properly introduced to each other she sort of says the same thing there's no talking with drago he's like wait a second i thought you of all people would be on my side but it's because he's not listening to reason himself and it 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 does lead to his father's death and it stings when when stoic is gone he feels like he failed him um but thankfully he does have his mother there in his life now and she sort of helps him to realize that hiccup's destiny wasn't to follow in any one of his parents footsteps and it it was a mix of both really to, to to be true to himself it he's a natural born leader he formulates a plan when it's time and he does use the dragons to accomplish that, which is something that his father wasn't necessarily able to do. And then finally, when it's his time to step into that role as chief at the very, very end of the film, he doesn't hesitate. There's no qualms. There's no pauses or debates. It's just, okay, I am ready for this. My father's sacrifice is not in vain. I am proud to follow in his footsteps now. He's figured out who he is. And I I really love that journey. Yeah, and I, I, just on a more uh, sl- kind of slighter level, I, I love how 
he has all these new gadgets uh, yeah. that he didn't have in the first film. And I love that the film never really calls attention to any of them. They're just all around a part of his life. And he's, he's just constantly, you know, pulling them out, playing with them. And it, it's just it's just there. And it doesn't call attention to it, but it makes such a wonderful level that every time you watch this, I'm noticing a different thing he's doing with these little gadgets and whatnot. It sort of reminds me of in the first film, if you watch Gobber, every single scene, he has a different hand attachment. Um, which I don't think people will always realize on the first viewing. And so that's something that rewards you. And in this one, it's the same way where you you get to see another little thing that Hiccup has invented, whether it was the more obvious ones like his his fire blade or his Which is wings. the greatest thing ever. Yeah, it's one really one. cool. But then it, it becomes more than just a fire blade and it becomes like a, a, a gas leak that is able to set off chain reactions and he uses that against Drago in the final fight. It's, it's really cool how not only he has matured, but also his uh, dexterity with tools. And that, that really sort of is epitomized in that first opening scene with Toothless where he's wearing his mask, and we know who it is, obviously. Um, but that opening flight scene, they are so completely in sync with each other. To see the two of them paired together is to see the two of them complete. Yeah. Um, and there, that's even referenced towards the end of the film when when Hiccup blinds Toothless to protect him from the, the alpha. And he says, you and me as one. And that that really is the definition of their relationship and it's so cool i go back to the the formation of that friendship in the first film with the um forbidden friendship where it's no dialogue it's just them feeling each other out and here they've completely feeled each other out they're five years into their friendship and they are 100 percent in sync with each other and it's just awesome to watch yeah ha- 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 that the device of not of toothless not being able to fly properly without uh hiccup on because hiccup shot his tail off is just so perfect and it just perfectly uh captures their friendship and i mean you it's hard to talk about you know hiccup without talking about toothless um and you there is did you notice that there seems to be a lot of a uh, stitch uh from lilo and stitch in toothless's character which obviously makes sense being the same directors but there's just so much life uh, behind him as a character, there's never once where I just think, "Oh, that's just uh, is just an animal." There's just so much personality, even in the the background where where you know Hiccup will be in the foreground talking with someone. Toothless is always doing something funny or cute or crazy in the background. It's just, and when they're together, just <laughs> it's almost like almost like dialogue, except for only one of them is speaking, but they feel so complete together. Mm-hmm. It's such a cool friendship. It's one of my favorite movie friendships, I think, because they they do build off of each other. They do work together so well because they have to work together so well, and that that really is the the highlight of their friendship is that they need each other and they are part of each other, and that is so. Excuse me, that is so cool. Um, now, yeah, and, you know, uh, Toothless can't fly without Hiccup, and Hiccup <laughs> definitely can't fly without Toothless. <laughs> right, that, that's exactly right. Um, now, what about Stoic? Uh, I, I was going to talk about the mother first, but I think Stoic is a, a good one to move on to next. I love Stoic. <laughs> I, I mean, and this is another place where I think the film takes what was done in the first one and drastically improves it. Like, Stoic... In the first one, they definitely go out of their way to make him sympathetic and give him some really great human moments. 
but he's still he's still like incredibly harsh. And in this film, they do this like beautiful little retcon that would make like J.K. Rowling proud by having <laughs> uh, Hiccup's mother have been killed by a dragon. So you know now now all of his hatred towards the dragons makes perfect sense. You know they killed the woman he loved, and as we see here, he really loved her. Um, so I, it's kind of one of those things where a sequel change does a little change to make uh, the original better. Um, but just as a character, the way he, um, him and Hiccup interact, they obviously, they're, they are constantly, you know, going head to head, but there's never a, a second of doubt in this film that Stoic absolutely loves him and will give his life for him and will do the same for any one of the people in his tribe. There's, he is such a wonderful leader. Um, and while, I think not, neither Hiccup or Stoic are fully right in the in, in the film. They 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 there's still there is definitely there's a a there's truth in both of what they have to offer. And you know, having him die, I I, I mean, it sounds kind of sadistic, but I absolutely love that he does sacrifice himself for his son, and you know, which gives you know, Hiccup that the ability to finally come into his own. But I think the the big thing for uh, Stoic in this film is obviously finding Valka, and man, boy, do they sell this this relationship for the fact that we, we have we know nothing. The only thing we knew about it in the first film was that you know uh, it was half a breastplate kind of thing, right. and even that was it keeps a, her close, like, you know. Yeah, it was uh, <laughs> it was a really quite a nice little moment, you know. And I think uh, Gerard Butler does really got a good job, you know, putting that emotion into his voice. But here, that moment when he finally finds Valka, and she's obviously kind of almost terrified because she knows she was wrong to leave, and she's kind of going through this entire uh, ar- argument that she's probably rehearsed in her head, you know, dozens of times over the years, and he just doesn't say it. He just you know, walks up and just touches her face, and you know, you're as beautiful as the day I lost you, and it's just like. I, I, I cry there every time because the animation is so good because you, you look into his eyes, you see nothing but this, you know, this lo- absolute longing for the woman he's loved that's been gone for so long. And uh, just the, 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 the fact that they can put so much character into that relationship with so little dialogue, just purely through visuals and just just and just the emotion of the actors Gerard Butler is absolutely fantastic in this in this especially when he's talking with Valka and then there's song I mean the, when he just goes over there starts whistling and then for the the half second where he's afraid she's not gonna accept him again you just see this heartbreaking look of sadness and then yeah. the joy in his face when she starts singing again I mean every second where he is with Valka I think is it if like if I could only take one subplot from this film, I think it would be their relationship. Yeah, the the relationship with Valka is definitely a highlight for me as well. Um, I, I cry at that scene as well every time. You're not alone uh, because after it being so many years, he thinks she's dead, and he really does have every right. She had the means to come back. He has every right to be angry with her over not returning. But his first thought, and even his second thought, or third thought, 
he doesn't even consider like or anger. It's love from the start. And he does say, you're as beautiful as the day I lost you. And it, it's like his voice breaks as he says that. And she's, she sheds a single tear and it's, it's beautiful. It is such a wonderful moment. And I, I, I can't help but put my, myself in Hiccup's shoes in that moment where he is seeing his parents, one of whom he thought was dead. He's probably fantasized something about this all his life. What would it be like to have both my parents? And here he is with both of his parents still very much in love with each other after all this time. And it, it, they, they have this dance scene and it is so beautiful, so wonderful. I love that relationship. And then later when Drago attacks and they, they all go out there and they start doing their part, he sticks to her and he protects her with his every ounce of strength. He, he doesn't let her out of his sights if he can help it. And everything he does is to protect her first and then to protect Hiccup next. And that is the moment when he dies. And man, that sacrifice destroys me <laughs> every <laughs> single time, like sobbing. That, that is such a tough scene for me because it is so well done. And it, 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 it's like this thing in my stomach just drops or in my throat. It, and all of a sudden, when you realize, I, don't, I wish I could remember my very first theater reaction because you see it coming. You see it happening. You understand what's about to happen before it happens. And it is heartbreaking. But it also feels necessary after the fact. It's not just like, oh, well, they killed Stoic. Uh, way to go, killing a character. I think that it raises the stakes, but it also helps Hiccup to solidify who he is. He's a person like his father who will do what it takes to protect his people, no matter the personal cost. And once he understands that about his father, I think he knew that about his father. But once he sees it in action, he understands that he has to follow in those footsteps because those are Admiral footsteps to follow in. Yeah. And you know, it, on top of giving consequence, I mean, on top of adding stakes, it gives consequences to the actions of the characters, which rarely ever happens in animated films. You know, how many animated films are there where they do the fake out death where, Oh, it looks like they're dying. I mean, the, the, the first one does it actually where you know, a character seems to, uh, to be dead, but then, Oh wait, they're fine. And, and, you know, first time watching this, you, you're kind of, you're expecting that trope to come back that, oh, he's going to wake up again, but man, they, they do it. And I absolutely applaud the film for having the guts to do that. And then, you know, having the skill to make it this meaningful to the story. Now, as for the other parent, Valka, um, I like her a lot too. I think Kate Blanchett does a great job voicing the character. Yeah. And again, I have to put myself in hiccup shoes. In the moment where he meets his mother for the first time and learns that she is basically an extension of who he has become naturally, how masterful with dragons she is, how fond of keeping the peace she is, just like him, how, how emotional that would make me and how, uh, I, I don't even know how to describe it, but just the connection that would instantly form knowing that the mother that I never knew I became like, and mm -hmm. she, she even says, you know, after all this time, who would have thought you took after you, you take after me. And it, it's really cool to see how, yes, she's sort of lost the sense of human connection, 
uh, in that she doesn't have that sort of pause where she apologizes right off the bat or says anything redemptive of herself right off the bat since she has been absent for all of his life. She instead turns to the dragons and says, let me show you this place that you're think that you're going to think is pretty cool because I think it's pretty cool. And she slowly, she slowly learns over the course of the film to form those human relationships a little bit more um, as she's reintroduced to stoic and as she spends more time with hiccup and comes around the other people who are taking risks and sacrificing themselves for their dragons and for each other. Um, but I, I just love that Valka is an extension of hiccup as we came to know him in the first film. And we see him at the start of this one and they immediately have that connection with each other. Yes. It's sad that she was gone for so long, but yes, it's really cool that they they are so similar. Yeah. And talk about an introduction where she just comes out of the clouds beside him with that awesome mask. And then the, the scene where um where she flies her her uh, cloud her four-winged dragon cloud jumper flies up in front of them and they and they're both just kind of flapping uh in place and just the clouds just starting up around this one of the great visual moments. Um but just as a character, I, I love Kate Blanchett's accent and the way they animated, there's a very kind of feral animalistic quality to how she moves, and like she touches everything and uh the way she speaks is like there's a the sentence structure is a little odd and the kind of the, the inflections are a little off. It, you you really buy she hasn't really spoken much to people in, you know, a decade or two decades or whatever. And you know, all all it's just little touches like that that make her feel like a, a really a real person that the, you know the that that is a part of this world around her. And the, the way she interacts with the dragons and the flying with mother sequence as she's kind of running along the wings and bouncing around all hiccup uh in the in the updraft. It's it's just a really uh great visual character as well as I think a, a solid character emotionally. And it's cool that she introduces us to new things about the dragons that we didn't know. Because that was sort of Hiccup's job in the first film. And we learn things in the the training sequence of that film where uh, grass, this special kind of grass, sort of renders them uh, playful and just flops them over. Whatever else Hiccup shows us in the first film or discovers in that first film. Here is someone who spent a couple decades with dragons and has figured out all the tricks. And so she brings up the spines along uh, Toothless's back and talks about... Uh, I, I don't even know. She She's able to sort of incapacitate. Uh, I always confuse her names. Toothless. <laughs> um, incapacitate Toothless and sort of uh, put him aside so that she can be more one-on-one with Hiccup. Uh, it's really cool that she sort of expands the dragon lore, if you will. Yeah, and I love how proud t- Toothless is of those little ba- the flaps on his back. <laughs> yeah. He just spends the whole scene bouncing around and showing them <laughs> off to people like a little puppy. And, and and I I just about, also about toothless. I love how he's almost kind of bashful when he goes into the uh, the dragon sanctuary, where, where you know everywhere else he's kind of he's kind of the king of the hill. He's the he's the best dragon there is. But then he comes into all these other dragons. He's like he doesn't know where he is. He doesn't know his place. And uh, it, it's just little little bits like that that make him such a a well rounded character, it's despite of being a completely uh, you know nonverbal animal. And then we have our villain, Drago Bloodfist. Bloodfist? Yeah. Bloodfist. Yeah, Bloodfist. Okay, just want to make sure I was saying that correctly. Um, Jamon Hunsao voices a character. Um, He's 
the master of dragons, or he thinks of himself as the master of dragons. He's also the master of ego. <laughs> when, when he's told of Hiccup, the greatest dragon master out there, he says, I alone control the dragons. And he has the same sort of overconfidence that I mentioned with Hiccup earlier in the film, but Hiccup is able to overcome that overconfidence, whereas with Drago, it's sort of his downfall. But man, what a great villain he is. Yeah. I mean, first of all, I, I love his accent. I think it it really serves his character well. And there's this this musical cue uh, for him that something about him just feels so foreign and alien. Like he's like he's like literally kind of this foreign or this alien presence coming into the Vikings world, and it's a really unsettling uh, theme for him. But just the way he um you know his, his philosophy of the world is all about control like he grew up in fear so he decided you know to to become that fear and you know to try and be the king of the hill by simply by controlling everything and you know he 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 pretends as kind of some kind of humanitarian gesture to free mankind from dragons but uh yeah as a you know hiccup calls him out that's obviously just to control people but uh he has the line um where him and uh and uh hiccup are kind of staring each other down he talks about the the uh the ult the ultimate form of power you know power uh was no well the the strength of will over others where everything about him is is focused on dominating others i love the way he uh he tames the dragons or subdues them just just by you know screaming and waving a stick around just basically beating them into submission and and kudos to them for making me believe that a guy yelling and swinging a stick would cow a dragon but i totally buy it there's just something in the way it's he, you know he, he voices and it's animated that he just has this personality that he, he just uses to overcome everything around him and i love how that sequence comes very shortly after the sequence where hiccup tames all the dragons in valka's cave where after he after she kidnaps him and he, you know, he pulls out his sword and does the, all the fire tricks kind of sub, subduing them by you know becoming one of them he shows the difference with how uh, Drago does it by simply imposing his will on others. Even even the the great bewildered beast, like the, uh, Valka's bewildered beast, is like this huge, wonderful, majestic creature. And even though the other one is almost identical, there, he still feels like a broken, chained animal. There's just something uh, kind of calf crazed and like and just. Uh, subdued about that character because he's under he's because uh drago has conquered him and you know as the end comes around where it, it finally you know becomes the test of those two types of loyalty where hiccup hiccup is a leader because he makes those under him love him and drago does it through fear and in the end we you know we see which which uh you know is better when when the time comes everyone is going to go to the one they love rather than the one they fear yeah, Drago is terrifying, <laughs> both in in stature and in character design and the way his face is all scarred up and his missing limb, as we discover later. And I, I, like you said, I completely believe that he's able to subdue these dragons with this terrifying screeching and uh, it's awful. But uh, <laughs> he he's so overconfident. He so strongly believes in his hold on the dragons that he doesn't even really try to stop Hiccup, which like I said, is his downfall. He believes Hiccup's victory to be impossible. He, he sits there and dares Hiccup to try and release uh, Toothless from the hold of the 
alpha of the bewildered beast and toothless does it because mm-hmm. his bond with hiccup oh, hiccup does it because <laughs> his bond with toothless is so strong see there i go again because they're one and the same um yeah. but it, it's just really cool that hiccup is able to show that loyalty does win over uh subduction subdue subduing your prey or whatever you want to call them um and, and we and actually oh go ahead along those exact same lines is you know toothless becomes the alpha not 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 by you know trying to overcome the others but it, it's an act of love it's his action to try and protect to, uh hiccup that leads him to become so fierce and get his godzilla form which is absolutely amazing the the, the blue lights along his back and tail um and then you know t- to, to he challenges the alpha as an act of love towards Hiccup, which is that which is what inspires the rest of the dragons to follow him as the leader. And Valka is the one who points that out to us. It, it, it's really a cool scene because, again, it's, Hic- it's, it's Toothless revealing secrets about himself that we didn't know because he is a Night Fury. He is the last of his kind, so it seems. And we don't know anything about them. So we're really, they're really able to introduce things about this type of dragon specifically that might not be able to fly literally on other on other dragons just because mm-hmm. they're they're documented they're known and so i love that and just because it's really cool <laughs> yeah it is really cool and you see the the glowing blue ice and all of a sudden i mean toothless is glowing and he's angry and he's all about protecting hiccup because he realizes that he did kill stoic and Hiccup had that moment of anger, but understood that it wasn't really Toothless's fault. But Toothless is angry about it, and he says, what you made me do to Stoic, I'm not going to do to Hiccup, no matter what you try to do to me or how you might try to control me. And it's all, like you said, a protection of uh, Hiccup, and it ultimately seals his victory. And in this idea of uh, loyalty versus fear, we actually see that personified in the character of Eret. So it's a little bit more on the nose than the dragons themselves because he's a character who's an example of how our minds can be changed in an instant. And also how, as we've said multiple times, loyalty is more powerful than fear. Uh, He's all about following Drago. And at the beginning of the film, he says, you know, this is what happened to me. And he shows a scar on his chest, this giant brand on his chest given to him by Drago for failing to bring in the dragons he was supposed to failing to meet his quota. And he's Mm -hmm. driven by that fear of something worse happening. And even though he brings in the, uh, Astrid and the others and their, and their dragons, Drago turns against him and says, you, you failed me one too many times. Your useless, your usefulness has run out. You're gone. Well, that's when Stormfly Astrid's dragon jumps in and saves him and he's astounded why would that happen why would that dragon do that and that starts the change in him and it's it's a little bit faster because I mean it did save his life and he does have that moment where he's able to thank Stormfly face to face and say thank you and let me return the favor and it's really cool how he does have that sudden turn to where he becomes a good guy and I I'm actually grateful at the end of the film, when Toothless, oh, goodness, when Hiccup <laughs> <laughs> offers his father's dragon to Eret because he's earned his trust. Yeah, and I like how from the very first moment we meet him, 
even though he's a dragon trapper and he's not he's kind of, he's kind of a bad guy you can see that he has a very healthy respect for the dragons um and th there's a, a brief moment when he uh, takes a hiccup sword and throws it over the board overboard and stormfly goes and fetches it he just kind of looks in wonder like it's like something he's never seen from a dragon before and I, th and I, I like to think that's you know the first moment that kind of gets under his skin uh you know to, to thinking differently about the dragons till obviously when stormfly rescues him and then he joins them and I, I think a big theme in this film is forgiveness you know uh stoic forgiving valka or and um and obviously, uh, Toothless forgiving, I mean, uh, <laughs> forgiving Toothless for killing his father. Or, and in the end, you know, it's the tribe, you know, forgiving Eret. It's, you know, it's, you know showing us you know, the, the possibility of redemption. And I think he, he's uh, a great uh, a way to show that. And uh, Kit Harrington's just super likable in the role. I really like the character. I like the character design. I, I think he's a welcome addition to the cast, and he's supposed to be returning for the third film as well. So I'm excited to see possibly more growth from him um, as he becomes accustomed to the ways of Burke and has a dragon of his own and learns the power of loyalty and trust to a dragon, that connection. Yeah, it'd be really cool if they challenge him so we can see like, you know, if, he, if he's really changed. Are there any other characters you wanted to talk about? I mean, I like Astrid, um, but she doesn't have a whole lot of personal growth in this film, sort of like in the first one, to be honest. Um, but I, I like her. I like the side characters, Fishlegs, Snotlout, Spitelout. Well, Spitelout's <laughs> his father. Um, Rough Nut and Tough Nut. All those characters are just as fun. Um, I was talking to you before we started the movie, or before we started recording the podcast tonight. This movie isn't nearly as quotable as the first one is. There's lots of great one-liners uh, from all the characters in the first one that I quote all the time. Not even kidding. I quote mm -hmm. the first one all the time. And this one just isn't that kind of film, and that's okay. Um, but it just means that those side characters aren't quite as memorable this time around as they were in their introduction. Yeah, I... I as you said, Astrid, she doesn't really get an arc, but I do like her character. This the scene in the beginning with between uh, her and uh, Hiccup, which I think is just a really lovely moment of you know uh, the, where you see how the relationship has progressed, and I like that she's kind of dropped that really angry, false bravado that she had in the first film, and kind of she's still you know she's still fierce, but it's a much more mature and thoughtful. Uh, character that we see even though even though she doesn't get a arc i think she's a really good presence and the moments she does have with hiccup i think are, are really good yeah i do like her more this time around than in the first one not that i dislike her in the first film but if i do have any sort of minor very like thin slices of criticism on the first film it's just that astrid's dialogue is somewhat wooden in a couple of scenes and i think it's better here and she is more mature so i appreciate that but that being said i mean like I said, I like the other characters. There's just not a whole lot for them to do here, aside from just be in the background, do their job as support, and have their their tiny moments throughout. They they do have some of that comic relief that we do need after <laughs> stuff like Stoic's death. But I grew facial hair for you. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> uh, any other characters? Or uh, I mean, Gobber. I love Gobber. But... Oh yeah, how could we not? <laughs> He doesn't get nearly as much screen time again, like Astrid, sadly. But there, every line he has is gold, and Craig Ferguson is just hilarious. But then the the moment where he does that speech, you know, you know, a warrior, a chieftain, a father, a friend, Ugh. and it's 
absolutely beautiful. Emotional um, destruction round two. Yeah, and, uh, <laughs> and uh, it's just it's so good. Well, let's go ahead and move on to talking about music. John Powell, man, as I said, he is the king of animated scores. I I don't know many people in the film score community who would argue that there's a better animated composer than John Powell. He just brings out all the stops. He's always on top of his game. And just like the first movie, the first movie's score is one of my favorite scores of all time. It's that good. Yeah. The yeah. the the main theme, this is Burke, this is uh the the romantic flight theme, that that romance scene between Hiccup and Astrid, the test drive sequence, which was my, oh my ringtone gosh. for like two years. Um amazing. It's it's amazing how much quality came from the first film's score separate Forbidden from the film. Uh... Forbidden friendship for sure, yeah. And it's just as good the second time around. He brings back all of those familiar themes that we love, and he matches that first score beat for beat, brings back those themes, brings back new themes, and it is just so amazing, again, that the efforts in the sequel were matched in the second the the efforts from the first film were matched in the second film. It it just blows my mind that we got another fantastic 10 out of 10 score from John Powell for this film. Yeah. I think my favorite, it's a toss up between flying with mother and for the dancing and the dreaming, just flying with mother is just this absolutely joyful uh, kind of uh, thing, underscoring all these crazy flights they're doing. And then for the dancing, the dreaming, it's just this lovely little love song, um, you know, between them. And the melody is just really catchy. Um, See, I've, can't think of it. I think uh, two two new alphas is also I think pretty awesome. It's like super triumphant. Um, it does it doesn't have as many like of the really great memorable themes as the first one, but the ones that are there are very 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 good. Yeah, the the newer themes, the main ones that stand out are the the themes for Stoic and Valka and Valka herself, and then also Drago's theme, which is like a ba da dum ba da da da. It, it, it's really cool. Um, really big and bold. Um, oh yeah, and uh, uh, where no one goes, which is yeah, the the Yancey song, which is absolutely thrilling, and it's an interpolation of Test Drive. Like it, it mm-hmm. uses the elements from that that song, that track in the first film, to mimic the sequence at like almost a a, a more intense sequence. It, it, it's so cool how there he's able to interpolate that that track from the first film into this sort of pop music i wouldn't really call it pop music it's more on the folk side of things but it's energetic it doesn't feel out of place in the film which could have been a concern for a song with lyrics aside from for the dancing and the dreaming which fits in very well Mm -hmm. Uh, but we get we get it in that beginning sequence and we get it uh i think the same song just a, a separate section of the same song at the very end of the film as well. And I, I really love Yancey um, in both films. I, I think his his sound is unique and brings something unique to the film. Yeah, they, they released the, that that uh, Where No One Goes sequence as the first teaser trailer. That, that was when I knew this is going to be a great film. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, because that, that sequence is just great. I, I, I meant to mention this earlier. I love how the flights are shot. The film is very much shot like a live action. Everything feels like an organic camera movement. And 
I think an issue with a lot of animated films is you know, they take the fact that they have a digital camera that can do anything and they do anything. And while you can, you can, you can get a lot of cool shots, you lose a sense of gravity and weight. I love that you know, every time a dragon flies by the camera, it shudders and every movement feels like something you could really see. And it, it makes you feel like you are really there flying with these dragons. And that, that, uh, that flight sequence is just you know, showing off all those techniques. And it's one of the most thrilling sequences that I've ever seen. I agree uh, 100%. And I think that that's uh, definitely thanks to Roger Deakins in at least some small way. Um, I'm sure he helped to improve a talent that was already there. Uh, but it, it's just, I, I, we're, we're raving. And so uh, <laughs> we should probably move on. But there's just so many good things to say about this. So let's sort of get to our closing section. Relevance, takeaways. There's some heavy stuff in this film. Uh, what's one of the themes you take away? Um, a balanced foreign foreign policy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, just the you know, don't go looking for a fight. But but I I like that it. I think a lesser film would have gone for uh, you know a completely pacifistic angle. But I like that this film recognized you. Know, uh, you know, don't look for a fight. Try for peace, but be really ready. You know, to protect protect your people if it comes to that. I, I really like that. Um, and then obviously the um. How how uh the different ways to get people or in this case you know dragons to follow you through loyalty we talked about that earlier but, you know loyalty and versus fear, um and then just that that final um that final uh monologue that you read at the opening you know the, you know, the, the people who oppose us are relentless and crazy the people that stop them even more so we are the voice <laughs> of peace and bit by bit we will change this world it's like it takes you it takes active relentless work to change the world for the better. Um, you know, the quote, you know, the only thing necessary for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. It's, it's the idea that, you know, change for good is possible, but it, it takes work. It takes a fight. It takes people willing to, you know, go out there and do what needs to be done. And I love that that's how the film ends. You know, you know, it, you know it's a kid's film and, and giving them, you know, the, the idea that, that the, if you want you, the world to be better, you have to do that yourself. You can't sit around and expect the world to get better if if you're not willing to fight for it. Yeah, I I like the parallel between Toothless becoming the alpha of the dragons and Hiccup very similarly becoming the alpha among his people um, because both of them do so through protecting their peers, protecting their kind. Um, So we, we have that parallel between those two characters. Again, how they're so similar and connected with each other. They learn from each other, they build off of each other, and that is also taken from Stoic's death. Um, there's a quote from Valka after Stoic sacrifices himself, and she's trying to explain to Hiccup that Toothless didn't do it on purpose. He, he couldn't have helped it. She says, good dragons under the control of bad people do bad things. And it's the same in our world. Good people under bad influences can do bad things. So I think the film is really trying to show us that we have to resist. We have to keep ourselves in the company of good people with good influences so that we can continue to act good. And that, that's exactly what you were just saying. We have to affect change in the world. It doesn't just happen. If we don't do anything, then the bad happens. And so mm-hmm. it, it, it's an action. It's something that we have to actively pursue. Um, but I also like that in Hiccup trying to find himself and eventually finding himself, he learns that we are our own people. We don't have to follow in the footsteps of those before us, but also it's not 
a bad thing when we do. Um, I think it's it, it's showing us that Hiccup had to go about this path in his own way. He didn't just blindly follow. Not not that there's anything wrong with following what your parents do, but do you understand what I'm saying? I'm trying to not yeah. like uh, go in circles too much. <laughs> but um, Hiccup borrows eventually from both his father as a leader and his mother as a dragon whisperer, and he bridges the gap, brings an element of peacekeeping that wasn't present before. He he. It's like a a triangle where you have his mother and father on one point and then he's on the third and they become a circle by the end of the film where they're they're overlapping and they're all he he's taken the values of all and put them together. And I, I think that it's important to realize that yes, we are our own people, but no, it's not a problem. It's not a bad thing to to follow the examples of those who came before. Yeah, I think it's a super balanced perspective. Again, a troubling aspect of a lot of films, and especially those directed at teenagers, is you know, the the past is a problem that has to be you know overthrown. And obviously, since humans are flawed, every generation has its flaws, and each next generation has to, has to you know has to face those problems, and you know hopefully overcome them. Also, every generation has the things that made it function as a society, made it work. And if you can't just go about, you know, trying to tear apart a culture from the ground up, you know, you have to, you know, take what worked, take the good aspects of that culture and, you know, and then, you know, be the change you want. So the fact that the, the, this gives such a balanced perspective as opposed to so many other kids films, I, th- I find very refreshing. Yeah, it's, it's not saying you have to be your own person and ignore what everybody else says to you. It's part of that, but it's also part of taking the advice and listening to people and learning from people. And mm-hmm. uh, I, I think that's a very valuable lesson from a kid's movie. Uh, it's very Pixar of DreamWorks to bring that to us, and I appreciate that. Yeah. Uh, well, any closing thoughts? Any final thoughts to say about the movie or anything we haven't addressed yet? I could talk for a lot longer about this film. <laughs> I'm sure both of us uh, could, but it is now 1 a.m. where I'm at. And as much as I would love oh, wow. to continue talking, um, I think that we, we've done justice with what we've done so far. Yeah. So that is the end of the official 71st episode of Cinescope. Thank you so much, Gabe, for being patient with me in my schedule and uh, <laughs> talking with me about this outstanding movie. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I loved it. Contact for the show, facebook.com slash Cinescope Podcast and at Cinescope Pod on Twitter. Please continue to go over to iTunes, rate and review. Subscribe if you haven't already, or you can do that on the Apple Podcast app on your iOS device. If you have any other feedback or ideas, you can email Podcast at gmail.com or to contact me about co-hosting. You can do that as well. I do have a few people who have contacted me about that and I haven't responded, so Please be patient. I will get in touch with you eventually because I'd love to have new voices on the show in addition to our returning voices. So if you have a movie that you love and think you can talk about it for a good long while like we just did, uh, let me know because I'd love to have you on. Now, Gabe, where can people find you and your work online? Uh, yeah. So like I said earlier, if this is going up tomorrow, I, I think our first episode of Franchise Fatigue should be up within a couple days of that. Um, so you can go to uh, FranchiseFatiguePodcast.com. We're on Facebook as Franchise Fatigue Podcast and on Twitter as Franchised Pod. 
and uh, we are we are reviewing the uh, Indiana Jones series for our for our debut. Yeah, and like we mentioned earlier, I am on the fourth episode of that with Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. If you'd like to hear some of my defense of the film, also some of my <laughs> criticisms of the film, uh, that'll be fun to tune into, I hope. <laughs> now, the best place to find me on Twitter is at Chadadada. That is C-H-A-D-A-D-A-D-A. Also, Facebook.com slash Chad.Hopkins. And you can listen to my other podcast, An American Workplace, where we talk about the where we talk about NBC's The Office. Um, we're about halfway, a little past halfway through season three so far. You can find that where podcasts can be found and at workplacepodcast.com. And all the show notes and contact information for this show can be found at thecinescopepodcast.com. And that is all for this week. Thank you, Gabe. It's been awesome having you on the show. I hope you had a great holiday and happy new year. Yeah, thanks for having me on. And thank you, everyone, for listening to episode 71. I'm Chad Hopkins. This was Cinescope, and we'll be back next week with episode 72. Have fun and celebrate movies. (laughs) ¶¶